leadership needs to make a declarative statement, internal facing, perhaps external facing, how important diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are to the organization. That's number one. Number two, they have to be willing to reallocate resources. That would be headcount and dollars. We didn't get to this overnight. We're not going to get out of this overnight. We're not going to get out of this by simply standing up an unconscious bias training and thinking that we've done everything that we need to do for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. You're going to have to shift some stuff. You're going to move some things around. Then the third thing that we have to do is hold folks accountable. That was Torin Ellis, diversity strategist, risk mitigator, podcast host, speaker, consultant, and friend, and a lot more. And I'm really excited to bring you the full conversation with Torin after a brief word from our sponsor. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool powering fast-growing companies like Shopify, Rubrik, and Sneak. Automate messages across the employee journey so you never miss an opportunity and your employees are supported every step of the way. From onboarding to becoming a new manager and more, PIN helps companies communicate at scale. Go to pinhq.com for more information. That's P-Y-N-H-Q.com. Reinvent communications for the distributed workforce. And now, onto the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Redefining HR. I am your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I'm really excited to be sitting down with an old friend of mine, Torin Ellis. So Torin is a diversity strategist, a risk mitigator, podcast host, uh, speaker. He's doing a lot of things, and I want to actually, I don't want to steal that intro from him. I want him to actually walk you through his background. But Torin, we, we probably met, well, like 10 years ago, maybe at uh, Recruit DC. I feel like that might have been our roots. Does that feel right? No, it's actually a little bit longer than that. And thank you ever so much for having me on the podcast. Like, I absolutely appreciate you for inviting me, for trusting my voice, for giving me a bit of space to talk about a subject that I absolutely love. Michael Tyson is still, what, 54 years old, hitting harder than a lot of 20-year-olds. We still got folks running around here with fake COVID vaccine shot uh, records. Uh, activist athlete t-shirt. Like I'm really ready to have some fun and do some things with you. Uh, so thanks for having me. And as it relates to you and I, you know, connecting, I, I vividly remember Lars, you know, seeing you on stage at talent connect. It wasn't live, but it was through video. And this was right around 2015 or 2016, if you will. And I was like, I want to do that. And in 2015 or 16, I hadn't done a keynote yet. I hadn't been on a big stage yet. So I'm telling you, my introduction to Lars was watching you on a video at Talent Connect some five, six years ago. Wow. That's a trip. I, you know, for some reason, because I know we're both DMV, which for those of you that don't live in the area, uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia, we're locals here. Um, so I thought for sure we had met at a recruit DC, but that's actually a, a pretty cool story. And I mean, I'm stoked to see what you're doing now, because obviously uh, you, you are you're doing it um, from that moment. If that was a, a spark for you, it, it sparked because now you are uh, you're doing tons of stuff. So for listeners and viewers that may not be familiar with you, may not know you yet. Help them get to know you. What's Torrent all about? Um, to, to give us give us an overview of your world. Yeah, absolutely. So again, diversity strategist, risk mitigator, global speaker. I am the co-host of Crazy and the King. Uh, a podcast with my dear pod partner, Julie Sowash. Um, 
So I show up differently in the DNI space than anybody else that you are going to encounter. And I don't say that to impress you, but to impress upon you and the listeners that I move differently. So I spend a portion of my time optimizing DNI strategies inside of large organizations, mid-sized organizations, and startups. I coach leaders around how to be and model better their DNI presence and practice, if you will. I speak and I'm unapologetic about the way that I speak, like I'm an unbridled voice. There is nothing that you can do to control what it is that I'm going to say because I know I'm moving in love and truth and that I'm trying to challenge and agitate individuals to simply do better. What I say to them, Lars, is I want you to wrestle with what it means to be human. Like, I don't care about all of the data, the charts, the reports, the white papers. I want you to wrestle with what it means to be human. And so we do that from stage, vocally agitating, but amplifying a beautiful message around diversity and inclusion. And then, of course, I do my pod with my podcast partner and most recently got taken the task by people in the disability community. But it's all good. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit about the podcast. Like, how'd you hook up with Julie? How'd you land on Crazy and the King? Like, take us behind the scenes. Like, how, how did the show come together uh, and, and how the two of you connect? Yeah, so Julie's married to Chad Sowash, who happens to be uh, part of Chad and Cheese, the podcast. Another great um, podcast, so, by the way. If you're listening to this, you should be listening to that as well. Absolutely. And so what happened was, you know, I flew into Chicago in September of 2018. I got to tell you the story. I got to tell you the story. Yeah. So I flew into Chicago in September of 2018. I was supposed to meet a gentleman that I had been mentoring digitally that evening. Well, he never showed up. I was there for a disrupt HR event. Never showed up. Didn't text. Didn't do anything. Julie was there. And so disrupt HR, you know, is really like a five or six minute presentation. Flew in, dropped the mic on him, flew out. That's how it worked. Chad was like, Torn, I really think that you and Julie, because of her love and affinity for the disability space, that you two should really do a podcast together. I get a text about a month and a half later from the young man that I was supposed to meet. And he said, Torn, I didn't show up that evening because my son died in a drowning accident. Oh my God. He texts me, he texts me on my youngest son's birthday. So here I am. I'm First of all, I'm emotionally wrapped in why he didn't show up, why I didn't get a text. I'm thinking about that night all over again in the presentation that I delivered. I'm considering what Chad is saying around you two should really link up. And I'm saying to myself, everything happens for a reason. And so to fast forward, we came up with the name of Crazy and the King because Julie is a white woman. She has a hidden disability. And so she wanted people to see how functional she was even with her disability. So people refer to me as the king of DNI. Well, it's interesting too. And I think uh, you, you mentioned, as you alluded to, I'd love to learn more. You, you said you got kind of called out a little bit by the, the disability community. What was the, uh, what was the backstory there? Yeah. So a, a couple of weeks back, you know, not knowing when this will, will air a couple of weeks back, uh, Amber Ferguson at the Washington post, she wrote an article in the article and I'm going to butcher the title, but the article was around, caregivers, how caregivers of those that are para paralyzed or experience a disability suddenly, yeah. how they are not compensated. And I underscore not compensated. So in her article, Amber Ferguson focused on these three women. They all happened to be white women. 
the accidents were like, you know, the guy broke his spinal cord in like a swimming accident. So nothing crazy, but it happened. And so her article was really, for me, insightful in highlighting the fact that when these situations happen and people can't prepare, it's not as if you knew a person had a disability and then you engaged in a relationship with them. This happened. Yeah. And so now it interrupts everything that you know about life. It forces you to reevaluate and to edit, make all types of edits for life. That's just the truth, the reality. I thought the article was insightful. It helped me to recognize and understand here's a part of the disability community or here's an aspect of the disability community that I didn't give strong consideration to. And in the article, it showed that eight states will allow Medicaid to compensation to go to the caregiver. And that in an additional eight states, there's private relationships or arrangements for the caregiver to be compensated. That's a total of 16 states out of 50. So that means the other states where this happens, that caregiver who most likely has to quit their employment, they're not receiving any compensation. Here's the story. The disability community felt like I'm not disabled. How in the world can you possibly share your opinion about it being an insightful article when they didn't center people with disabilities? Mm. They didn't really raise the voice of people with disabilities. There were people in the disability community that felt like the article was terrorizing. It was traumatizing to read. And so I understood that. I took it. I took I took that learning. I took that commentary. I took those tweets and said, I'm cool with that. The challenge that I had is that the person who started the firestorm said, if DNI is important to you, then you should be considering the voices of people with disabilities. And I said, if clearly you don't know who I am, clearly you don't know how dedicated to the space I am, how unapologetic, how unwavering my focus is for you to say, if disability is important, I'm sorry, DNI is important to you. So we kind of just went back and forth and it was, that was all good because I invited the, both the, the reporter as well as the three women who took me to task on Twitter. I invited them to be guests on our podcast because I wasn't mad about it. I wanted to amplify. I wanted to hear and I want other people to learn. And that, you know, I just share that story, Lars, because it's important for people to know you are going to make mistakes in the DNI space. In the DEIB space, you will make mistakes and being paralyzed and saying, I'm not going to do anything. Well, that's not helping us to wrestle with what it means to be human. You know, I'm really glad that you actually brought that up because I think it does speak to the the you know the nature of diversity work. And if you're committed to this space, like you said, you are going to make mistakes and you have to see those as learning opportunity. And I mean, there, you know, there are a few people who have made diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging, their, you know, personal mission at the same level as you, yet, you know, obviously still you can be in a position where, especially when you factor in intersectionality, you know, you you may you may share something that to you is enlightening, but you know, you don't have the perspective of the people on the other side of that article who are traumatized by it. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a great for all of you listeners out there that are are really making your own personal commitments, and hopefully that's all of you 
to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, that is somewhat putting yourself out there and, and you are going to make mistakes. You're going to, you're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to do the wrong thing. You're going to, you're going to make uh, a judgment based on your uninformed uh, opinion and, and you may be corrected on that. And if you are, honestly, that's a gift because it's somebody who's taking the time to actually invest in your education and your development. And so, you know, it's really important that you take it that way. And Torin, I mean, that's a, a masterclass, I think, in how you responded to a scenario like that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I often say that uh, the two most powerful words in our lexicon are love and process. So if I love you, Lars, there's really no question around, well, why did Torin say what he said? Why did Torin tap me on the shoulder? Why did Torin push me out of the way? Why did he exclude me from whatever this event was? If I love you, you are less willing or less likely to question the action. If you don't know that I love you, then you have to process, well, why did Torin say that? Why did Torin leave me out of the event, the meeting? So love and process to me are two of the most powerful words in our lexicon. And I really just try to remind folks. I try to embody that. I try to model that. And so, again, it really is a learning experience. And I'm often reaching out to individuals and saying, where did I go wrong on this? Or I'm, I'm thinking of doing this or saying this right here. How how do you temper that? How might that land with you? And so I'm always querying people, if you will. And in that particular instance, you know, the last thing that I'll say about it is I didn't want to be that person who comes across and says, well, I have friends from the disability community and they gave me, you know, approval or a green light, if you will. No, I stood on my own. I stood on my own. I tweeted it. I felt like it was insightful. I didn't get permission. I'm taking the backlash, the 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 reservation that you all have. Um, so it, it's just it was one of those beautiful learning experiences for me. And I think that we we should all chase them down, if you will. Yeah. Well, let's, I want to, you know, kind of step back and take like a get your perspective on a, a macro view. I mean, the 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 moment in time right now we're recording this in, you know, August of 2021. Um, you know, the last year and a half since George Floyd's murder, um, the conversation specifically within the HR community, but also obviously broader society and business, um, you know, has has, you know, kind of really um, centered some of the conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion in ways that especially for the HR team, honestly, we haven't. Uh, up until now. And I think that there was, uh, you know, there was a, a, a climbing kind of consciousness and awareness and commitments and things that you saw, you know, last year. Um, and this year, some of that has continued. Some of that has tapered off. It doesn't feel necessarily as centered externally in terms of the, the conversations that are happening in the space. Um, and I'm curious to get your take. Like when you look at the landscape today, specifically around kind of organizations and HR teams, uh, you know, really uh, either honoring their commitments or, or making commitments to change. Um, where do you, where do you, what's your take on kind of where the, where we are today, essentially? Yeah. I mean, it's, that's one of the reasons why I applaud and support the work that you are doing with redefining HR, because I think that we need a redefinition. You know, I, I want to take it back even before George Floyd. And there's just a couple of data points that I'm going to throw out there with no and just in random order. I think about the whole incident around James Damore and Google and them letting him go. And I believe it was 2017 based on that manifesto. I feel like that was a bad move. 
I think about what Deloitte did in 2018 when they did away with ERGs because white men felt like they weren't invited. And so they set up something entirely different. Wrong move. I, I, I feel like when the the uh, report came out in September of 2020 from Citibank that said that racism has cost the United States 16 trillion dollars because we've not closed the gap in the uh, areas of education, housing, health care. Um, and I forget the fourth one, 16 trillion dollars. That was September of 2020. I think about the incredible interview you had with Josh Burson and Josh Burson in March of this year, where he said the number one skill that HR is lit missing is DNI. Ninety-eight percent of the people, if I remember that number correctly, ninety-eight percent. So I said to myself, "This is the way that I've always operated, but even more so now. We have so many examples of why we've not done this work well." That when I hear people in HR, talent acquisition, employer branding, corporate social responsibility, philanthropy, learning and development, board, C-suite, when I hear people tell me that we can't do DNI, it's infuriating because we can. We're talking about something that has been present since, let's say, 100 years. Ford did it back in 1919 when they instituted policies that brought diverse individuals and underrepresented individuals into their workplace. And we've had a series of legislative marks. We've had a number of data points. We are at a point where I don't believe we can afford to continue to be complacent and slow and supportive of mediocrity. And ah, let's go get it. Let's go get it. And, and when I get I get upset when I think about, you know, even me, too. Me Too, and for me, was largely HR departments covering for the company and not protecting the women. That's a fact. That's a fact. We got a case right now with a governor leaving the state. And guess what? That governor was enabled by individuals, supported by individuals. People covered for that nefarious activity. So I don't look at D&I and say, well, it's only their issue or their problem, or they're the reason why we haven't had, there's enough complicitness to go around where we should all be saying to ourselves, what more do I need to do? I have a book up uh, above me right now uh, by Alex Coban titled The Uncounted. And in that book, he asked two important questions. He asked several, but in that book, he says, who's missing and how do you want to be counted? So when we are having conversations, I don't care if they're conversations around what does our learning and development look like? What should we be considering in terms of philanthropic efforts, our succession planning? Where should we be going for um, to, to deliver our products and services in terms of new communities and new geographies? What should those products and services look like? It doesn't matter to me what the business question is. We should always be asking ourselves who's missing and how do they want to be counted? You know, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I haven't heard of that book, so I definitely need to check that out. And I think, you know, there's moments where I have um, I have hope and optimism for progress. And there's moments where I see data points and I'm just like, what is I mean? So like last year, obviously, you had 
Coinbase's apolitical stance uh, this year, Basecamp kind of followed suit and they had a tremendous amount of kind of employee backlash from that. Um, and there was a study I saw actually um, from, I know they're no longer SurveyMonkey, the uh, company formerly known as SurveyMonkey, and I'm forget, forgive me for, uh, for not knowing the, uh, not recalling the new name, but they did a, a, a survey of, um, it was a, a broader survey and it included uh, employees up to CEOs and it was broken down by demographic uh, and asked some range of questions on DEI. Um, but one stat shook me a little bit, which was, you know, 51% of white CEOs uh, viewed DEI efforts as a distraction to the business. And I think if you look at the demographics of CEOs broadly, they're typically white men. Um, and so, you know, anecdotally, you, you see a lot of these stories. But if you have, you know, statistically over half of white male CEOs saying that DEI is a distraction to the business. It was, it was an anonymous poll. So like these are probably many of the same CEOs who are, uh, you know, changing their avatars black and, and you know, making commitments, uh, you know, optical commitments. Um, but maybe, you know, deep down, that's really how they feel. Like, how do you how do you overcome that? Like, especially even if you may be a chief people officer, or a CHRO, and like you're personally very committed to uh, to equity uh, and kind of removing some of the systemic issues within your organization. But if you have a, a CEO who feels that way, uh, who ultimately is the person greenlighting or not your efforts, how do you how do you begin to overcome that? I don't believe I may have saw the same study that you are referencing, but I did see that number uh, and I saw something on racial equity data hub. And, and for those of you out there who are not familiar uh, you can go to racial equity or just Google racial equity data hub and look at the number of incredible partners that are calling this information and bringing it to life, if you will, policy link and Tableau and some of the others that are out there. So that's the first thing. Racial equity data hub. Great place. Great resource. What I would say to the question is, and I wrote an article about this in the USA Today earlier this year, uh, and, and basically I spoke directly to leaders in that article. And this is what I said, Lars. Number one, if in fact you want people to believe that your organization cares about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, leadership needs to make a declarative statement. That statement does not have to be external facing, but at the minimum, every single individual in the organization should know where leadership stands. Let me define leadership. That's the C-suite. That's the directors. That's even your hiring managers or the people that are leading your business units, your departments, and your teams. Leadership needs to make a declarative statement, internal facing, perhaps external facing, how important diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, and belonging are to the organization. That's number one. Number two, they have to be willing to reallocate resources. That would be headcount and dollars. We didn't get to this overnight. We're not going to get out of this overnight. We're not going to get out of this by simply standing up an unconscious bias training and thinking that we've done everything that we need to do for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. You're going to have to shift some stuff. You're going to move some things around. We got to move some people around because they don't have the competency to do what nece what's necessary. We got to move some people around because they don't have the bandwidth to do what's necessary. We got to move some folks around because they need some resources. We got to support them with the dollars. You have to be willing to reallocate resources. March of 2019, Russell Reynolds delivered a report and the report was titled Finding Your Next Chief Diversity Officer. The glaring call out in the report are that they are under-resourced and underfunded. 
So we got to move some resources around. And then the third thing that we have to do is hold folks accountable. Like how hard is that? Hold people accountable. I think about Larry Fink's letter to shareholders in December of 2018. Larry Fink from BlackRock, one of the largest investment firms or wealth management firms in the world. He said BlackRock is not going to employee wise look the same way five years from now as it does today. So we are going to slowly build and hold you accountable for your efforts towards diversity and inclusion. Hold people accountable. And the biggest win for me in 2020, Lars, was that I had three clients say, I am going to put a measurement, a question around your contribution to DNI efforts on performance evaluations. Huge. And it was very simple. It just simply says, what did you do to help us in our DEIB mission? That's it. And what that does is it signals to every single employee that impacted more than 100,000 people. It signaled to all of those individuals, wait a minute, my comp, my bonus, my promotion is not necessarily connected to this, but because they're asking me, <laughs> it suggests that it's important. Doesn't matter my role, they're asking me. It suggests that it's important to the entire organization. Declarative statement, reallocate resources, hold people accountable. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to take a brief break to share a new initiative that I think you'll find helpful. Redefining HR started with this podcast and evolved into a best-selling book laying a framework for modern HR and people operations. I'm excited to share the next evolution, the Redefining HR Accelerator. The Accelerator is a full platform to build, inspire, and support the next generation of people leaders, including cohort programs, courses, open source resources, and most importantly, community. Thanks to listeners like you, Redefining HR is now broadened into a tire platform focused on building readiness for tomorrow's HR today. Learn more at redefininghr.com. And now, back to the show. You see me kind of nodding my head as you talk about the performance review question. I love that because that is something that touches every employee and it reinforces the the commitment and importance of the work um, to all employees and aligns that with an organization. And it's dead simple, right? If you're watching this, if you're listening to this, that is as simple as adding a question to your performance review or your pulse checks or however you go about surveying your employees um, to reinforce your commitments. And again, if the honest answer is I didn't do anything, okay, now we get to coach up on that. We get to develop on that. We get to inspire and build on that. I'm not penalizing you for having done nothing. I get to now work with you. But if it becomes a pattern that you are not helping us, it at least allows me to view how you are. And I'm not saying that I'm excommunicating or removing you from the organization. It just allows me to understand from an intersectional or from a layer standpoint, who are the individuals that are ambassadors and evangelists and helping us to live out our mission of being a better workplace? Yeah. And, and I want to I want to actually come back to something you said earlier in the conversation around you were kind of giving a couple of anecdotes of companies um, that who made the wrong moves. And one of them basically disbanded ERGs because their white employees felt excluded. And I'm you know, I hear a lot from HR practitioners in some organizations where, you know, they are making um, public commitments to 
uh, whether it's ERGs, whether it's specifically Black Lives Matter, whether, you know, whatever the organization may be, they're making public proclamations of that. And they're getting pushback from some of their white employees. Um, And this might be, you know, white lives matter, blue lives matter, whatever it might be. But again, that kind of what about me, uh, which is, again, coming from typically white men or at least white people like how do you what do you what do you what do you how do you counter that right like how do you if if you're having a conversation you're maybe training an hr manager and you know she's saying that she's having an incident in her organization where you know she's getting some pushback from white employees around let's just say specifically you know all lives matter uh compared to black lives matter how do you how do you kind of coach her through him through navigating that scenario yeah, I mean, the definition of inclusion is everyone. So I use the simplicity of the definition. I can't build an ERG and socialize it inside of the organization as being exclusive or exclusionary and then say that I'm doing what it takes to build inclusion in the organization. So I may be on an island all alone. There are some of my friends that do this work that are like, no, well, the LGBTQ ERG should be only for, you know, those that are allies and or a part of the LGBT community or the people with disabilities community or, you know, the first time mothers community, if you will. I'm not of that opinion. I'm of the opinion if, in fact, you really are an ally to this particular work and there's some degree of affinity for a subject matter, an audience, a population, a group that you should be welcomed in. And so I'm the person who goes into organizations and says, no, Deloitte, that's who you're referring to. I shouldn't be socializing messaging in the organization that makes white men feel like they can't be a part of this conversation. Yeah, I want you in here so you can hear what I'm saying about you. (laughs) I don't want you to read about it. I want you to hear it directly from me. A condition of progress is to allow those that are suffering to speak their truth. So when we are talking about ERGs, there's a reason and there's a way that Torin and his team sets up ERGs. Well, we do and build ERGs so that they have an internal and external facing uh, ROI. So internally, we are looking for development and inspiration and a place where we have safe you know, conversations, if you will. But that should include people who want to be a part of the advancement. External facing, what are we doing to help build the business, to support the business, to impact the bottom line? That's what a good ERG is for me. I don't need a clubhouse. Like, I don't need just a group of people that I can just kind of like, I don't need, I don't need a, a, a space where I'm, I'm trying to complain and, and, and no, nah. diversity and inclusion for me is of promise. It's not punitive. It's true, but it's of promise. It's beautiful. So I'm using these spaces, these groups, these opportunities to really challenge individuals. How do we move forward? And I don't want to necessarily move forward outside of including people. The only cut card that I have, as we would say, Lars, is I have zero patience for racism. So I'm not really trying to coddle, nurture, bring a person who is, I mean, bold and just absolutely a staunch racist that's not a person that I'm trying to convince that we should be doing this DNI thing together. I have no time for that. That to me is, you know, and, and certainly there are some other toxic categories that I don't have time for, but that in the workplace for me is like at the very top of the list. Yeah. And I'm wondering like with, with that approach to ERGs, how do you, how do you kind of balance, um, you know, ERGs on one side being a, 
a safe space to come together, people with shared experiences, life experiences, uh, and then maybe people from you know outside of that group who don't have that same shared experience kind of being a part of it, and then you know, not necessarily knowing how, like, again, they maybe they want to be an ally, maybe they are an ally, maybe they're not an ally, and they just want you to teach them more, like they're on their learning journey, and they're hoping to tap into the ERG to maybe accelerate their learning journey. Is there, like, how do you mitigate that a bit? And, and maybe the, the spectrum of somebody from, like, a true entrenched ally versus, like, ally adjacent or ally curious who uh, is, is really kind of tapping more into the RG group to, to, to learn and educate themselves, you know, potentially through that, putting more of an immers- emotional strain uh, on the members of the RG. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you heard me say learning and development a couple of times earlier in the conversation. You just mentioned it in the conversation. It's one of the value points that are extremely important. And so what I do is I challenge organizations to search for DNI or DEIB at every value point in the organization. But specifically to your question, I use four words, empathy, intentionality, proximity, and transparency. Empathy, intentionality, proximity, and transparency. So I can't learn if I'm not proximate, if I'm not intimate with the information, the experience of others, the concerns of others, the beauty of others, the growth, the challenge of others. I, I, I share with your audience a book that you they may want to read is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Like when you read that book, it gives you a different relationship with that familiar phrase of pull yourself up by your bootstrap. We've heard the phrase a thousand times, a hundred thousand times. When you read the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, it allows you to get close to the scenario of black and brown people in cities all across this country. It allows you to better understand when black folks say or black people say or others say that we have institutional and systemic racism that has been supported by the government. It gives you a different relationship with pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So for those individuals who are challenged or those HR leaders who are challenged or, you know, white individuals in their organizations feeling as if they are being excluded. I'm just really pushing them to say, "Um, no, that's not the way that you build an effective ERG. Actually, that's not the way that you build an effective culture. That's not the way that you build inclusion and you build belonging. If it matters to you and you are true to the definitions of those words, belonging and inclusion, and then you're going to bring people in and you're going to welcome them in. And so that's the way that I work. Your work specifically on the, the consulting side, you know, you have a really unique vantage point of being able to go inside of organizations, understand kind of where they are, where they want to be, where the gaps are, helping them kind of develop a plan. Like, what you know, based on on kind of what you've seen, typical engagements over the last you know six twelve months. What are you typically like without naming clients, obviously, but like what are they typically when when they're engaging you? What are they what what are they coming to you as like what what they see as their uh, you know opportunity or problem set and and where are they trying to kind of leverage your unique skills and expertise to help them address them? Yeah, I would say that, you know, uh, a couple of things that really stand out. Number one, the highest levels of leadership are afraid to model good DEIB practices. So I have clients that come to me and really want me to specifically work with their C-suite. How do we do a better job 
of modeling diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in community and geography, in product and services, in headcount management, and in succession planning. How do we do a better job of addressing DEIB in those areas? Because what I need to do and often do is take DNI away from race and gender. That's easy. You know, we can continue to hang our hat on that particular, um, you know, hat post, if you will. And and I think that the conversation is going to go only but so far, which is in part why we are where we are now, 30, 40, 50 years later. So so one of the pressing issues is helping leadership to model good DEIB. Another issue that uh, continues to be something that we have to address, and you've already asked it, is how do we set up effective ERGs? And my team has a way of evaluating, understanding what's currently in place, if anything at all, or building the ERG program from the bottom up, period. Uh, And then the third thing that I think is extremely important is that talent acquisition ecosystem. There are still far too many individuals that are leaning on the excuses of we can't find the talent. There's no talent in the pipeline uh, or some of the other, you know, crutches that they respond from. I come to this work as a practitioner. So I didn't build a DNI consultancy because I read a bunch of white papers. No, I'm a recruiter. I'm a guy who builds Boolean strings. I know how to snatch talent from organizations, tell incredible stories and put them in a different path, different trajectory. I build teams. I've led teams. And so I look at the talent acquisition ecosystem and we identify, like, how do we optimize this thing? You're inconsistent in your library of questions. You're inconsistent in the way that you set up and structure your interviews. You're inconsistent in how you handle your onboarding. You're inconsistent in how you look at prospects and applicants and candidates. It's they're all they're three different audiences, yet you're treating all of them exactly the same. So we look at how do we optimize the TA ecosystem so that we can add efficiency and effectiveness and speed and transparency to the process so that it is inclusive. That's usually helpful to kind of get that perspective. And uh, I close out every episode with a lightning round. But before I get to lightning round, I actually want to give you the last word. You know, a lot of the, the listeners and viewers are HR you know, practitioners, HR leaders, and even executives and organizations who really want to build um, high-performing, progressive HR and people teams. So um, last question for you, you know, if you're, if you're giving advice to that audience on how they should really be thinking about building uh, an organization, a culture, uh, a business that really prioritizes and embeds diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging throughout their people systems, um, what would that be? Well, I'm, I, I would go with three things. Number one, empowerment. Uh, We have to operate with a strong and convincing, convicted voice, if you will. We've had too many individuals that are sitting inside of our workplace and they've not exercised their voice. They've knowingly slid offer letters across the table to other women and they've been undercompensating women. We got to exercise our voice and we can't uh, continue to coddle and to nurture this complacency, this mediocrity, this um, division of progress, if you will. So number one, I would say to be empowered, speak up in your organization. Number two, I say strategic exploration. And I mentioned it earlier when I talk about the value points inside of an organization, it's about evaluating DEI or DEIB at every single value point in the organization. 
you can't take a requisition and determine that the talent that you need is the same across the board. If I look at the uh, organization and I determine that this particular department is a high growth department versus this department, which is in transition versus this one right here, which is an iterative phase, or I got to know what stage of the business the organization is in. I got to know what stage of the business the department is in, the team is in. And then I shift eval I, I shift accordingly, if you will. And, and then the third thing that I would say is the tactical execution, like potential minus interference equals results. How am I, how am I executing? And that's really my formula. P minus I equals R. I know you have potential. I know you know what it is that you need to do. I trust that you are virtuoso at the work that you are doing, but I'm looking at your will. Do you have the willpower to say I'm going to do better around diversity and inclusion? Do you have the willpower to say that I'm going to create some new relationships with strategic partners or community groups and organizations? Do you have the willpower to challenge your executive leadership to say, wait a minute, we could be doing a whole lot more. We don't need to go to this event. We don't need to continue to recruit from this particular school. We got a great relationship there. Let's build some new relationships. It's the tactical execution that too many organizations are missing. Empowerment, strategic exploration, tactical execution. Well, Torn, I, I appreciate the, the specific kind of roadmap, and I, I like that formula as well. So um, I want to close out. We close out every episode with uh, a little lightning round just to help the uh, viewers and listeners get to know you a little bit better, man. So you ready to jump in? Let's go. All right, man. I'm checking out your Spotify playlist. Who, who am I going to learn are Torn's top three artists? Um, Raheem Devon, Jill Scott, and uh, Donnie Hathaway. All right. Uh, what is your least favorite HR buzzword? War for talent. Oh God. Can, can I, Hate oh, it. like for decades, that's like a, a zombie phrase that just won't go 1998. away. 1998. <laughs> yeah, yeah. McKinsey, right? I, I think it's like, I think it's like 1996, 98 type phrase, if you will. Oh. I, I've hated it. I, yeah, I, 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 I'm with you on that one. I really get sad. It's just, it's just ridiculous, but it, it's, it's a zombie. Like it's like, I'm impressed with its, uh, its resiliency in, in our vernacular. Well, we just can't seem to kill it. So, uh, all right. If you weren't in doing this work in diversity, I'm going to take recruiting off the table. Cause obviously I know you've done that as well. Uh, what would you be doing? Entertainment. Go on, go on. Yeah, I mean, if if I had my choice, I'd be the individual who's curating, you know, artists or finding new talent. I absolutely love music. Um, I was a percussionist when I was growing up with my church. So I really, really do love music. Uh, I would absolutely be looking for new artists. All right. I like that. I like that. Well, now I'm going to hit you up for some more uh, recommendations. You're going to be my uh, my discovery engine. My man. Uh, all right. And then last question for you. Who is somebody who you admire and why? Um, I'm going to go with Melody Hobson. Okay. Um, in terms of somebody that I admire, um, I admire Melody Hobson because of her, her bold stance around being a black woman in finance and challenging these boards and others that we should be considering a broader, more beautiful definition of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. I think that she models what it takes for us to do the work in the particular rooms that we are in. I've never sat in a room with Melody. I've wanted to interview her when I had my show on Sirius XM, but she's one of those individuals that it was just hard for me to get to, but still she's a shining light for me. 
Well, Tori, man, as always, I enjoy the conversation with you. Uh, I'm bummed we haven't been able to do this live some random place in the world at conferences over the last year and a half, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to see your face here. And for listeners and viewers that uh, want to connect with you after the show, what's the best way for them to do that? Podcast, personal links, whatever, whatever's best. Yeah, well, it, in terms of the podcast, crazyinthekeng.com. Again, crazyinthekeng.com, or you can find it across all of the uh, platform, uh, podcast platforms, distribution platforms. And as it relates to me, I'm at Torin Ellis across all of social media, at Torin Ellis across all of social media. All right. Well, Torin, I appreciate you making time to come on the, the show, and I appreciate your work, and I appreciate you. So thanks so much for uh, all you do for all of us. All love, Ben. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.